Hello and welcome back to Climate Conversations with Irish Doctors for the Environment, the podcast where we host engaging and broad-reaching conversations with leading authors, scientists, activists and politicians, where we discover some of the solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises that threaten our futures and learn how these solutions will create a healthier, happier and more equitable world. My name is Callum Swift and today I'm joined by fellow ID member Anna Rakovats. And we're talking about a subject which is very important for us as doctors, and that's sustainability within healthcare. The healthcare sector internationally, if it were a country, would be the fifth largest emitter in the world. So the carbon footprint of healthcare presents a huge challenge, and solving it is not going to be easy because of the many different ways that the healthcare sector interacts with industry and the environment. So today we're very lucky to have on a leader in healthcare sustainability, James Dixon. James has worked as an environmental sustainability professional for over 15 years, winning several national awards along the way, including the Sustainable Healthcare Leader of the Year Award. His current role is Associate Director of Sustainability at Newcastle Hospital's NHS Trust, and also Sustainability Lead for Northeast and North Cumbria Integrated Care Systems, which puts him in charge of driving the trust and institutions transition to net zero. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, James. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invite. Hi, James. Uh, many thanks for, for agreeing to talk to us because you really, to me, are a hero. You embody the power of one person driving a change. So I think we we would really love to hear how did, how did your journey start and how did you... Uh, start a transformation is it sustainable healthcare in Newcastle? Okay, um, well, uh, I could probably start by introducing myself. So um, I'm an environmentalist, a chartered environmentalist and I work in the northeast of England um, for, for Newcastle hospitals. Um, after I qualified, I worked at the local council, Newcastle City Council, and then I came across to the NHS in 2010. Um, and my journey kind of started there. Um, I arrived as a, a waste officer um, and it was the, a, a new role and then people hadn't undertaken any sustainability work or dedicated on, on waste before that. So it was a bit of a blank canvas. So that was great from our point of view, albeit very daunting and challenging. So Newcastle Hospitals is one of the bigger group of hospitals in England. Um, and at the time we had about 14, 15,000 staff. Um, and on my first day, I had to spend 1.4 million on orders for waste contracts, which I survived the first day. That was very daunting, but um, managed to crack on. Um, and then kind of because there was no recycling or anything, I could implement a load of good changes. I was working with staff to learn about different areas um, and would note down any that were quite keen on recycling or anything environmental. So that was me kind of growing my network of green champions. Um, and then that kind of continued, work with some good people doing some good projects from the ground up, try to get a bit of a sustainability strategy um, across the board. And it was signed off with an action plan, but we were really still... Um, taking baby steps um, and then we use some national tools we we're quite lucky in England I'm not quite sure what the setup is in Ireland but um, at the time we had a, a small offshoot of NHS England called the Sustainable Development Unit and they produced some brilliant tools to help guide people like me and organizations to make action so there was tools they used to be called the good corporate citizenship assessment and then there was the sustainable development assessment tool basically answer a lot of questions in the broad brush of sustainability 
and then start to plan your actions around that. So it could be in areas of lower carbon care or energy or travel or waste, you name it. So that was good. Um, fast forward a little bit um, and I was lucky enough um, to get an opportunity of a promotion because we're changing of directors and create a little bit of a team. Um, and then we established a brand. So um, sustainable healthcare in Newcastle became Shine. So that was something that we could just hang on all of our comms work and posters and strategy and things like that. Um, so again, that was good. Maybe a little upturn for us. Um, but what I found there was, I think it was the winter of 2018 after the IPCC report was published in 2018. Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, sorry, acronyms are terrible in healthcare, but I'm sure most people listening to this would be familiar with that. Um, and that's that was really, I knew about all the climate sciences and environmentalists for that, but it was really challenging for me personally because I was thinking that incremental gains were, were where it was at and it quite clearly wasn't. We were on a path for destruction and I was basically crisis of confidence professionally. Am I doing the right thing? Do I go away? And I was starting to become a bit more active outside of work. I would say activism with a little a, um, but was gearing up um, with other groups to potentially um, get arrested with with some nonviolent direct action. Um, so it was a bit of a crisis for me going in that window. My wife, thankfully for me, was, uh, or still is, a clinical psychologist and spotted me going into a bit of a depression and very anxious about the future of our kids and the planet. Um, and um, there's a great book by Dr. Joanna Macy called Active Hope. So when you're crippled by, you know, the existential crisis that's happening to our planet and our species, then um, you should focus on the areas where you've got um, the ability to act. So that was a lifesaver. So turned it around in early 2019, went to my director. I had other teams and other responsibilities at the time. Um, so I was honest with him and said, look, this is not where my passion lies. This is the state of play with the science. And if we're going to take it seriously, um, we should step up our game. And also why it's a, it's a health crisis. So, you know, we all know that um, the change in climate is impacting on health here and uh, across the world. So um, thankfully he was receptive and he allowed me to approach our executive team with a one pager and trying to get all of that on one page was very challenging, but I did. And then it sparked some good conversations and fast forward a bit. Um, we were the first healthcare organization to declare a climate emergency formally. So the board had faith in me and you and the team and also knew why this was important for health. Um, and then there was a bit of a roller coaster since then. We'll probably get into a bit more conversation, but um, I didn't really know what it was at the time. It became a bit of a hook that a lot of local authorities and others were um, declaring a climate emergency. I just wanted them to understand the science and why it was important to health. Um, so that was just a, something to hook it on. Um, and then we had more uh, ambitious commitments and we started to implement how we could do that and develop a strategy and other things. But I'll probably pause there because you might have some other questions. <laughs> yeah, that, that's so inspirational in terms of how you dealt with that climate anxiety, because that's certainly something that's, I think anyone who um, starts engaging fully with the, the scale of the problem starts to experience um, and definitely uh, doing something within your scope of influence is, mm -hmm. is crucial. Um, with regards to healthcare itself, would you be able to quantify the, the kind of 
scale of the problem and how much healthcare contributes to greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, well, um, one of the, I'll, I'll kind of segue back and still answer your question, Callum. Um, so one of the crisis that I had was, you know, am I doing as much as I can as an environmental professional? Should I go and get arrested? Should I work pro bono for environmental charities where I can see, um, you know, my impact, you know, closer to home? But at the time, we'd calculated our carbon emissions and our the emissions within our control were about 50,000 tonnes. So that is huge when I think about, you know, what I could personally do and, and act upon. So um, I didn't realise it, but I did have a position of influence. You know, I was a head of department of a small team, but trying to do things. So um, the scale of healthcare's environmental impact is is huge. So there's been various studies over the years, but globally, um, there's an estimate that um, the health sector, the health and care sector accounts for 5% of carbon emissions and that's greenhouse gas emissions but um typically people just use carbon footprint and equivalent carbon emissions just to make it easy um that maps quite similarly to the uk as a whole is around five percent um but in other parts of the world um less it depends on how dirty their energy mix is and their, their transport infrastructure but there's a lot of embodied carbon that we all um use with the goods and services that we use in healthcare, um, it's global supply change. So how that is distributed and used around the world is, is quite similar. And would you just mind for those of our listeners who are interested in this problem, but don't quite speak the lingo, uh, would you mind explaining the scope one, two and three of greenhouse gas emissions and how they relate to healthcare emissions? Yes, well, I'll try my very best because even though I'm steeped in this, Anna, I, 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 it gets it can be quite complex. So, um, yes, what you've referenced there is um, there is a globally um, renowned way of discussing carbon emissions associated um, with greenhouse gases. So there's the greenhouse gas protocol, um, greenhouse gas reporting protocol, and um, that's a standard way of applying your carbon dioxide emissions, but also the carbon dioxide equivalents associated with your activities. Now, there are a lot of greenhouse gases, uh, nitrous oxide, methane, um, fluorinated carbons. So all of these are collectively known as greenhouse gases. Now, some of these gases have much higher impact. So the warming effect that each um, you know, kilogram of that gas is vastly different. So one example that I'm working with at the minute is carbon dioxide. If you consider that to be one global warming potential of one, um, nitrous oxide is just almost 300 times um, more potent as a as a global warming gas than carbon. So how that applies in healthcare is nitrous oxide is used for pain relief, analgesia. Um, so Entenox is a brand, but it's a 50-50 mix. People know of it as gas and air. It's used for labor and women, certainly in England. Um, so that is very potent. So we need to deal with that. Um, but if you think of that as a whole, you've touched on scope one, two, and three emissions. Scope one emissions are the emissions that you are directly in control of as an organization. And it is typically the fossil fuels that you burn. Um, so that could be a, 
a fossil fuel gas boiler, whether you're at home uh, with a combi boiler and gas um, feeding that, or if you're at hospital, that might be uh, burning gas or fuel oil or coal. So that, that is your scope one emissions. It's also any of your own fleet. So if as a hospital trust or in healthcare, if you own or lease fleet, you are responsible for how that is used and how it's burned. So they are your scope one emissions. Um, scope two is um, ring fenced for just the electricity that you consume uh, both at home or as an organization. So that's considered indirect emissions because you, you don't, you can't really influence how the power gets through the wires into your house um, or your hospital. So that's considered indirect, but you do have some control because you can reduce the amount of electricity. So energy efficiency, LED lights, etc. Then scope three is the really complex one, and it's the biggest part of it. And they are the in, they are the indirect emissions associated with everything you buy. So the stuff that we buy, um, the the food, the medicines, the packaging, the equipment, the IT, um, the professional services. So whether that be agency staff or um, specialist consultants that come in to advise on business cases or, or you know estates work now the cold scope three because you've got influence over those emissions you can choose where to spend your money or who to bring in or what medicine to use um, but you, you've just got influence over that you can't control necessarily how they've brought that service or the good to you now in typical terms certainly it changes in country to country but western healthcare tends to be um, a split of about 70% is your scope three emissions. So the stuff you've got less control over, but just a bit more influence. And the ones you do have control is about 30%. And the majority of that is the heat and power for your hospitals and health centers. Now, it's important to say there's a very much of a deviation if you have an ambulance service trust. They're very fleet heavy, you can imagine, and, and not as much of, a, of an estate. So within their control, they've got a much bigger proportion on the um, emissions that they burn for their fleet rather than the buildings. But typically, if you work on a 70-30 split, that's, that's normally about how it works. So you've just there quantified the, or kind of highlighted the scope of the problem, which is um, the sheer quantity of greenhouse gases that the healthcare system produces and the range of different um, ways it produces. So, you know, the, the next obvious question is, well, how do we get those all to net zero, which is an aspiration that the NHS has formally um, made into practice. Um, and they've got very ambitious um, net zero targets. So they have said that they want a net zero NHS carbon footprint of directly controlled emissions by 2040 with ambition to reach 80% reduction by 2028 to 2032. And then the kind of further emissions that the NHS can influence net zero by 2045. So that seems like an enormous task. And it's something that you've been actively working on um, already. So can you talk us through some of the key areas that you kind of start with the, the lowest hanging fruits that organizations can pursue? And then we can move on to some of the the more challenging areas of decarbonisation within the health system? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question, Callum. Um, I'll start a bit with the journey of how we've been involved in that. So after we declared, if I pick up that thread, um, and we just basically said it was important to health, our CEO shared a platform with the then NHS chief executive, and he used our words, the 
the um, climate emergency as a health emergency. And then he tasked an expert panel of um, mostly academics, but people that knew both the climate science and healthcare on how the NHS could get to net zero and how soon. Now, Dame Jackie Daniel, our CEO, was the only provider representative on that panel. Um, and the, through early COVID, the pandemic, um, they were meeting uh, remotely and they pulled together that report that you've um, highlighted the targets there and yes it's ambitious um, it's 10 years ahead of the UK government's commitment to be net zero by 2050 so the NHS wants to lead in this space um, I think as an employer the NHS collectively is something like fourth biggest on the planet behind you know the Chinese army the US army and I think it's Walmart or McDonald's or something, but it's um, so very big. So the purchasing power and the people power is is good. Um, so that should hopefully help. Um, so their ambitions um, were stated in that report. And straight afterwards, we formalized after we declared our strategy and our action plan. And we want to go a bit further because we want to lead in this space. So we're aiming for 2030 for the emissions we control and 2040 for the ones that we have influence on. Um, how do we get there? Um, I don't think anybody truly knows exactly how we're going to get there. Um, a little word on net zero is the net element of net zero is very important. So the language in this space can be conflicting at times and almost contribute to greenwashing. So in simple terms, you might have heard of carbon neutral before. And that is where an organization or an individual will calculate their emissions and choose to offset all of those emissions um, through some certified schemes. And there are some gold standard schemes that can validate the carbon emissions offset. Net zero is a, is a different term. And the idea with net zero is to rapidly reduce your rate of emissions in line with the science of the Paris Agreement and trying to keep 1.5 degrees um, average global temperature rise and then when you've minimized them to the most that you can then you offset and the offset element is more to do with how do you take carbon dioxide and other gases out of the atmosphere to try and um, bring you down to net zero so that could be sequestered through um, tree planting but also preservation of peatland and and another um, areas that are known to be good carbon sinks so that was a little bit of a clarification on that. How we would get there, some of the easiest stuff um, won't cost money, I would say. Um, and it follows some of the work that we did early on. So um, lots of people already will be retrofitting older light fittings in hospitals and health centers for LED. Certainly you can do that at home and you'll see that you don't need to replace the bulbs very often and their energy can be reduced by something like 75%. So a um, little bit of a cost up front, but you make savings on maintenance and your energy bills. Um, I think overall, it's just reducing demand. And this goes across all areas of um, your carbon footprint. If we can reduce the demand for energy, we'll not need to be using fossil fuel based power for the short term. If we can reduce the demand or the consumption around the single use plastics and throwaway items that we use in healthcare that's going to help it's going to save money it's going to reduce environmental impact and then if you think on travel and transport so one good thing potentially with the pandemic is it normalized virtual um, meetings and conversations 
So the technology has been there for a while, um, but um, culturally we we struggled to accept it. And that, that was forced upon with the pandemic. And we've seen big reductions in um, patient and visitor travel that we can bring in through virtual consultations, whether that be over the phone or or um, through video. Um, that that has had a, a huge shift and that's a transformational shift that wouldn't have happened through incremental changes. So if we can reduce the amount of vehicles moving around um, attributed to healthcare, that is great. Um, and then if you get down to the individual practice level or um, hospitals, um, just more active and sustainable travel. So the more people that we can get walking to our sites or cycling to our sites safely or using sustainable mass transit. So, you know, buses that could be electrified or hybrid buses or um, electric trains. And, you know, if you have mass transit systems where you are. So any shift in those areas to reduce consumption will reduce emissions and will always um, be of benefit to health as well, because you've got, you know, air pollution generated from a lot of that fossil fuel burn. Well, a lot of what you're saying are the low hanging fruit that could be applied anywhere. But what I am really interested in and what I guess came across uh, your table when you first started setting up the sustainability community in Newcastle is that everybody starts with waste and waste reduction. And then very soon when you start thinking about the waste reduction, you realise that the key is really not letting it in. So the refuse and the reduce, which is where we go into sustainable procurement. Um, and I know that NHS has made some really uh, important uh, moves into sustainable procurement, first with setting um, obligatory weighting for uh, climate change in all sustainability contracts. But I'd be really interested in hearing from you, how does this work on, on the ground? And what has been done under on the national level and how do you see this procurement these procurement initiatives uh, being played out locally within hospitals or trusts? Um, well, procurement's a biggie, Anna. Um, so I could certainly talk about this for a long time. So that's where the majority of the embodied carbon is. So the stuff that we just bring in and throw away in summary, which sums it up nicely because we're very good at doing that in healthcare. Um, so nationally on sustainable procurement, there's been some massive improvements in the last few years. So the Greener NHS team uh, were born um, after the chief sustainability officer was recruited. Um, so the SDU, the small team that I referred to earlier, um, they were supercharged around 2019 and 20. So the NHS England and Improvement Board recruited a chief sustainability officer, Dr. Nick Watts. And then he started establishing a team, not just for Greener NHS, but also in other parts of um, NHS E&I. So the procurement team, the commercial and procurement team, they started to embed a um, sustainable procurement cell within there so you're not just a little offshoot you are embedded within the processes and also in the medicines unit as well um so we've been liaising with them so i think the biggest thing that the national team managed to do in the early days was signal to our supply chains that by i think it was 2027 if they are not um 
reducing their carbon and in line with the net zero commitments of the NHS, then we will no longer do business with them. So that sets the intent. Suddenly the big market players see that that's a threat to business and they need to start investing R&D and another money into how they can decarbonize and still keep NHS business. So that might seem like a little um, commitment, but it was transformational. And I started to see that because suppliers knew about our profile and came to us to say, right, how can we support this? This is great. We've wanted to do it for a while. So um, what can we do? So that has then evolved into the bit you touched on, Anna, which is the 10% mandated weighting of all um, procurement contracts in NHS as of April just gone. And that means that we have to give weight physically within uh, procurement to the environment. Now, I still think it's early days with that. Um, there's certainly more we could do to upskill our procurement teams on how we best use that 10%. Carbon literacy is still quite low. So in Newcastle, we've 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 sent our procurement teams on carbon literacy training so that they, they know what to do and we're linked in with our sustainability team. So it's still early days, but I'm really encouraged by that. And that could be transformational because NHS spend is so big that we'll start to see societal decarbonisation off the back of that because your pharma and your med equipment team, they use the same houses, warehouses as you know your Amazons and other the world in the UK. If they're telling them that they want to clean up their energy and their distribution, then we're going to see wider decarbonisation as well. So hopefully the NHS can be a bit of a catalyst for this. How that translates locally for us? Well, we're, we're lucky that so even before I started with the trust in 2010, we had been the first in Europe to adopt reusable sharps boxes. Um, didn't even know these were, the th were a thing before I arrived with the trust. And they are what it says on the tin. So the whole sharps box itself is made of really strong ABS plastic. And you put your sharps in at the top with a little tilty lid safety device and it drops them down horizontally and fills up. So the fill rate's really good. And then it goes to a um, facility where it decants the waste out and it's only the waste that's sent away um, for treatment or incineration. And then it's cleaned and sterilized and sent back. Now that shows a circular economy principle of just one element of healthcare that can be adopted. And I know there's, there's a, there's, desires to make that you know the norm in the nhs it will take a while so that that process is about 90 percent uh, reduction in the carbon emissions associated with the whole life cycle of sharps disposal so if you think your normal you know counterfactual is sharps box that is fossil fuel plastic probably from um saudi arabia or certainly around the gulf and then they manufacture that and you've got your plastic you fill that probably more of a pyramid shape so it's not good fill efficiency with your sharps and then that whole unit is sent for incineration typically now that means that about 30 percent on average of the weight that you're actually sending away to get burned is the fossil fuel plastic box so if we can adopt principles that are more circular like that um, reusable sharps box then we're starting to see benefit i had absolutely nothing to do with that so i can't take any credit but i'm a big advocate of that as an example and then some other things um, that people will be doing everywhere as well and we need to keep championing it is reusables so if you think of um, surgical theaters you're using your instruments then it goes off um, to hopefully be washed and autoclaved and then brought back that is reuse in action because there is alternatives to go to single use um, items, certainly in dental and podiatry and, and other areas where there's some really low cost 
um, single-use instruments that are starting to threaten that model of reuse. Um, and like a lot of things that you buy, if it's dirt cheap, it's normally at the cost of people or planet. So yes, it's great on your pocket, but if if that's so cheap, why is it so cheap? So the externalities around environmental impact or um, social impact. That example I mentioned of the cheaper single-use items, um, the subcontinent is notorious, particularly Pakistan, for really poor labor rights and, and, and children making these instruments. But then they get by by um, sending them off for final kind of cleaning up and finishing in somewhere like Germany or, or in the EU. And then it, the trail is very hard to find that it's come from such um, poor conditions. So we need to champion reuse wherever we can. Um, that's been a challenge through the pandemic. You know, we've we've still have reusable curtains with nice designs of the Tyne Bridge and other things from Newcastle. Um, that was a threat during the pandemic, but we were able to argue why this is still validated laundry and, and its embodied life cycle emissions are so much lower. So should we carry on championing that? And then things we haven't managed, but things like masks, reusable masks. So we're all familiar with the type 2R masks and um, that we're having to use and throw away. There's some great examples um, where, particularly in the southwest of, of England, um, Cornwall and Devon, they're trialing these reusable um, type 2 R masks that we can actually start to use. So um, where you can, don't just recycle things. Where can we look for circularity and, and reusables? And we should be championing that through sustainable procurement um, and educating staff on, on why this is going to support our climate emergency work. Yeah, that's something I struggle with on a literally daily basis, the amount of waste generated. And, you know, I've worked in low income countries where that circular use of resources is a necessity. So they, you know, recycle surgical equipment and launder surgical gowns because they don't have the disposables to use. Um, and then you come to a developed uh, high income nation that's we kind of have this uh, prioritization over individual patients safety above anything else. Um, and, and maybe that's a, a fair prioritization, but it does mean that for each person who comes into the hospital, the sheer quantity of waste generated is extraordinary at the, at, you know, to all to keep everything as clean and sterile as possible. Um, and for example, I work in an emergency department and, you know, one sick patient requiring multiple procedures like a, a central line and a urinary catheter and a chest drain will generate literally bags and bags of waste that goes for incineration, you know, more than I would generate in my home in several weeks, I can generate from one single patient. Um, and each of those things is individually wrapped, tiny little syringe, individually wrapped, little um, flush, uh, whatever it is, all in a larger wrapping, all that goes on a drape. And you do wonder the, the kind of risk benefit um, of all of that waste Obviously, it's great to guarantee sterility, um, but if it's producing an extraordinary amount of carbon, how much harm is that doing to the health of the general population in, in the medium and long term? And do we need to come to a reckoning where we, we start to really look at reducing the carbon emissions um, now in order to protect the health of, of everyone in the future? Yeah, I completely agree, Callum, and it's a wicked problem. Um, no doubt. So there's there's work that we can do locally and nationally to, to influence that and, and um, really look at where we're contracting um, consumables and other things. What can we do alternatively? Can we use reusable packaging? Um, and, you know, that's great. We can move forward. Um, but I think 
well, at times I think the answer will be taken away from us anyway, because the more that the climate continues to break down, uh, there'll be strains on supply chains and society that will force our hand on this. So um, it depends what mood I'm in, <laughs> whether um, I'm, I'm uh, positive about what will come about. But I think any work that we can do in this space will help us in the future, whether it is some critical shocks that might come about because of um, the bits I've touched on there, or um, we just start to truly value these things and, and, and question um, you know, universal precautions and other elements. Interestingly, um, I'm, I'm not up for infection control bashing or microbiologists because they're, they're really, certainly the ones that I work with are, are really on board with this. They see the challenge. Um, so if we can show that there is marginal benefits, if, if, if any, um, we can challenge these things. So the curtain example, you know, I was able to show that, um, you know, we can keep that clean and validate, but it is so much better for the planet to keep reusing rather than single use disposable curtains. And, and, and the manufacturer say, oh, but they're recyclable. So, you know, this is much better for the environment. There's, there's things like that that come up a lot. So we've still got a lot of work to do to show that um, recycling is only just one up from disposal or landfill. Well, having come from Croatia and being a few years older than Callum, I mean, I think we need to go back to go forward because like when I did my surgical training, the the basic bit, we everything was recyclable. Like the, the surgical wrap was cotton and it was autoclaved. The curtains were autoclaved. The sheets were autoclaved. Everything was autoclaved. The, the gauzes, the, the wound packs, it was all washed and autoclaved and we spent our night shifts making gauze um, uh, topfers, the, what do you call them, the little gauze balls with the nurses and putting them into the autoclave. So I'm really curious, how did you go about uh, this in Newcastle? Because in Ireland, everybody got rid of the hospital laundries in the 80s with the, and the 90s with the primes. Mm. And did you have to put the laundry back on site? How did that look actually in Newcastle when you brought it back in? Yeah, so the laundries are still um, national provisions. So I think it's a very similar story to Ireland. I'm not sure on the timeline, Anna, but when I joined, um, the laundry had gone from a regional service to what was tendered and, and, and a national kind of um, supplier won that. So we're still... We're still in that situation, um, but what we maintained in Newcastle was um, our scrubs and, and everything else was, was going down there, but also our curtains as well as the bed linen and other things. Um, some other places, I think the majority, I don't know, but um, are certainly using the single use kind of blue plasticky type um, curtains. So I think we're lucky in that the um, business case was well understood on why this was of benefit so it was going to save money but also um, uh, reduce the environmental impact um, and we've got sterile services departments on on our two uh, big hospitals in newcastle as well um, so we know that that's a resilient service so if there's any issues you know you can move across to the other hospital uh, but also you've got you've got them on on call whenever needed you know if you've got a certain um, tray set that needs you know escalated and used quickly if that was an outsourced service you would increase your element of risk so as a sustainability professional in healthcare i champion the fact that we have these reuse models and also um, defend when there's threat to elements of it, try to put forward the environmental case, but also can 
where else can we do work that we can expand this? Where are we not using reusables that we could potentially do? And one example that's on my radar at the minute is we have um, endoscopy on both sites and we have the automatic um, endoscope reprocessors, which is like big washing machines for the endoscopes. Um, so they're great. They're, that's a reuse model, they're very efficient, but we tend to have all the attachments and other bits as single use and some of the um, clinicians that we work with remember times just like yourself Anna where reuse was the default so we can get reusable elements that could go through the washers and then that would reduce all of the waste there so there's there's projects out there that we still haven't managed to crack but there's there's good potential. Do you think it'll be necessary to have a, a frank discussion about um, you know, Anna mentioned prion disease and reasons why people switched or institutions switched to throw away single use things because of a, a very small risk of transferring an infectious disease. Mm. Um, do you think there will come a point where we say that that risk uh, is present and is acknowledged and has to be bared because the risk of emitting thousands of tons of carbon dioxide is far greater to people's health? Uh, but it's difficult to say that because it's, you know, you can pin the transfer of a single infectious disease to a single item of reused uh, surgical equipment, but you can't, you know, ascribe blame to the general uh, prevalence of cardiovascular disease and asthma to one specific yeah. institution. And, and, and that's one of the, the challenges that we've always had with sustainability in the broadest sense, as well as um, carbon emissions associated with, with healthcare. Um, that example with the, the prions, um, um, certainly how we adopt it here is where there is known risk we've got separate trays and separate sets um, so I know of that example we are able to manage around that that keeps the risk at the acceptable level so where there's known risk we, we might use those and they might be disposed of if, if it's found to be a highly suspect case um, but using your example there Callum all of the other bits are still reused so I think that could be um, a way of truly sitting down and looking at the environmental risks as well as the, the patient risks and starting to make some informed decisions. So um, I don't know if it would be very straightforward and you've you've articulated well the challenges we've got to that because everyone, you can yeah, quality adjusted life years, you can use a patient risk, you can use NICE guidelines, which actually says whether it's worth spending money on the drug to get the quality of life outcome trying to bed that in with planetary health and planetary boundaries and keeping within that is still very very embryonic i think um there's good conversations going on nationally i've been involved in where we are trying to work out medicine's carbon footprint on things beyond your anesthetic gases and inhalers which is known um and that will help inform clinicians to to reduce the carbon there but even even that is quite a challenge um, and then if we move away from carbon emissions just just consumption as a whole so we've got we've got three long-term goals underneath our climate emergency strategy one is zero carbon care one's clean air and one is zero waste so they are high level it's three you know goals around the areas we need to focus on and zero waste is, is again difficult to define but what we're what our definition of zero waste is we do not dispose of anything and that's the bottom of the waste hierarchy, your landfill, your high temperature, high temperature incineration and other incineration. Um, so how can we scythe that out 
and then make sure that everything is getting benefits. So whether that is recycled more than once and um, reused so that the system gets a benefit from it. So that's our vision for that. And we can only get there if we start to work on education and procurement and making these making these decisions easy. So it's not for, for you guys at the coalface, it's just there. Whatever you use, you know, is going to go away and get recycled or repurposed or um, reused and cleaned. So you don't have to make that decision. It makes it easy for you. I'm just really curious how to go about and educate the the vast and 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 different strands of people working in healthcare. Because what I have found since I started uh, the Green Committee in my own hospital and trying to set up policies locally and trying to work with Irish Doctors for the Environment nationally is that most of the time we are knocking on the open door because the goodwill is there. Mm. But how do we go about educating everybody? So I'd be really interested in finding out what did you do within your own trust and within Greener, Greener NHS to educate both the doctors and the nurses and the porters and the electricians and the technical services and, and everybody that works in hospitals. Um, very good question, Anna. Um, so locally, um, if you think when I started, there was just me, I was out and about trying to understand all of the specialist services, you know, we're a big trust and we do pretty much everything. Um, and then I was highlighting on a spreadsheet, just the, the people with a green cell about green champions. So that's your people in each area. They're your advocates. They already get it. They're there. And then building on that with awareness raising. So that's some of your easy stuff. First step that I would encourage anyone to do. So go where the energy is. Find your tribe. You don't need to extend too much energy because you've already got that. So if you do manage to have a sustainability person or a coordinator in a trust, which ideally every trust would have, because that's we need someone to help kind of drive it forward. They can start by just doing that. And then also when you're working with the people that are good uh, and know their stuff, help them. So when I find a clinician that's reaching out and wanting to do good things, we, we nurture them because they can make big advocacy changes in their area and then shout about it. So back then it was by myself, one man band, I produced a quarterly green newsletter to just talk about, ooh, you know, Ward 39 switched to reusable cups and well done, Mary, and a photo of Mary. Suddenly, other areas are like, we've wanted to do that for ages. Oh, I'll contact Mary, I'll get it done. And it just percolates. And then you get a bit of um, friendly competition. So, you know, we're lucky enough to have two major hospital sites. The Freeman always wants to beat the RVI and vice versa. Um, so introduce an element of that and then the education piece we couldn't really go beyond that model until we started to get more of the team involved so um, once we had a, a waste manager he could go out and both audit the wards and departments but also educate so provide ward induction packs so anybody that's landing on a new ward this is what we do here this is the waste that we dispose of here's the bins and the various bits so that's something you can do organically once you've got a bit more resource in there. Energy, um, we have an energy manager and a, an assistant energy manager. They work with their key stakeholders who are estates. So working with the technicians out and about, making adjustments to the building management system to reduce energy and, and really bigging them up to say all of these changes are saving money, it's saving carbon and you're doing your bit. And, and when people know that they're 
um, their work's valued and, and, and as part of this common goal, then, you know, it'll spread. Um, other areas, travel and transport, massively challenging. You know, everyone wants free car parking on site, you know, for, for health and well-being reasons for um, staff. But that is a massive disincentive for people to adopt active and sustainable travel methods. It's not for everyone. You know, middle of the night, night shifts is not great that you want to be cycling. I completely understand that. But, you know, there are people that probably default to um, driving that could um you know take the odd day where cycling or, or bus would really improve um but then if you want to take a, a step from there our team offers um training now now that we've got a bit more of a team so climate emergency training for managers there's a two-hour course virtually online it's available um externally as well so i don't know if we could maybe pass some links or something um and after the podcast um and what it is for us is we oh, have about eight put it in the notes yeah, 80% of our, you know, we try to hold about 80% for our own staff, but it adds to the conversation if you get people from different trusts or, or different countries coming in. So we're actually going to have some Spanish delegates, I think, coming on the one. Um, but it's virtual and it just briefs people on the climate science and what we're doing about it. Two hours, you can't cover everything, but that helps. And then we have more detailed carbon literacy courses, which is a full day, and then a five-day sustainability ambassador course which we've run two years now and have been brilliant. And we've tried to get clinicians, managers, estates, people. Um, and then that percolates into each directorate. What do they want to do? What's their mini action plans? Are they going to have a sustainability strategy? So we've done great stuff in research and um, renal. So the, the dialysis team and also in procurement. So that's what we've done within our gift and our resource. And that, that's accessible and, and really working well. Um, and then it's working with clinicians to get it into the medical school curriculum. So we're lucky enough to have a really good medical school in Newcastle um, on our uh, shared on our site, on our city centre RVI site, the medical school um, and their undergraduate medicine um, teaching has now got elements of sustainability in there. There's a great planetary health report card that I think some undergrads and junior docs established and they now rate all of the medical schools. I know it's in England. I don't know if it goes beyond that on how their university is doing on sustainability. So their campus and, and their policies, but also what the curriculum's like. Are we teaching our new doctors coming through about how the importance of planetary health? Um, for human health so they should be advocates for that because you know clinician voices you probably heard it with other podcasts are are the most trusted in society if you think back to tobacco and, and, and other bits they they were the ones that helped turn the corner on these kind of societal changes um, nurses are most trusted by one percent more than doctors so i need to put you guys back in your place um <laughs> but but of those two professions head and shoulders above others it's a bit awkward that ahps are because it's an Ipsos Mori survey that they're not, but I, I fully expect they would be up there as well. You know, people, the layman terms of, of allied health professionals is, is not as well known. So use that trusted voice, you know, be aware of the science. You don't need to be an expert, but just know that action on planetary health and carbon emissions is good for human health. That's, that's an unbelievable summary of, of, of the, state of play and what we can do about it and i think you really wonderfully um illustrate this kind of the, the false dichotomy of personal versus societal action and mm. when we talk about individual action people often think that that's individual uh, ways of reducing our carbon footprint at home and, and that, that is helpful but 
you're really demonstrating how individual action can mean engagement on a institutional level or a political level or an activism level and can bring about much wider changes or much huger emissions reductions than simply just being on board with home recycling and uh, what the other things we need to do to reduce mm. our footprint. Um, and that individual action does mean engaging on a, on a larger level with, with the institutions you work in, um, with your political representatives, um, with your whatever organization you're in. And I, just as a, a way to finish, what would you recommend if someone's listening to this and is really fired up to go to their hospital or their institution and try and start implementing change? What, what would be the kind of first action or, or most important action you think they could take to start that process? I think so. Um, guessing that guessing the listener base, I would say um, one thing you could do in work, you know, in, in in your professional field, is to ask who your sustainability lead is in your organisation. Now that that simple question, and it might take a while to get an answer, or you might have a very quick answer. Um, but you know, escalate it to your seniors, or or send an email to your CEO if you've got the balls. I I, I certainly would advocate doing that. Simple question, who's the sustainability lead? Now, that's a powerful question because if there isn't a one, the people in power might be wondering why there isn't one and there'll be ripple effects of questions and others. Um, if there happens to be, and you're one of the lucky um, trusts and, and hospitals that do have you know, someone locally in your organization, then reach out to them. So I've been that one-man band back in the day and any clinician that was keen um, I would nurture them. So whether they were just wanting to um, recycle more in their areas, um, definitely, you know, have a conversation with them, meet up, tell them what your concerns are, tell them your area um, and what you'd like to do. Be positive because there's nothing worse than reaching out and saying, look, we generate far too much waste here. What are you going to do about it? If I got emails like that, I'm, you know, I'm not going to waste my limited time on that door when there's an open door of someone who wants to work with us. So definitely reach out. They will be massively grateful um, if you reach out positively to them. Just offer your help. Everyone's busy. All these clinicians listening to this will be. Um, but if you can just reach out, say you're an advocate and you would like to help in what little time that you have. Um, and also just find your tribe, I would say. So whether that is Irish Doctors for the Environment and and the and the various you know groups that you can um, coalesce in your local area or nationally, um, it's so important because this can be a really lonely space. I've certainly felt it, um, and it, there's an element of therapy in sharing the concerns you have, absolutely. And as long as it doesn't turn into a bit of a talking and whinging shop, um, you can use that connected network to. Um, build something from there. So if you've all got a collective whinge and one of you has suddenly got, oh, well, I managed to do this in this area, great. Share that and then others will not be staring at a blank bit of paper or a blank screen and they might be able to push for some action. And then just on, on Callum's bit, it's it's not... Um, Extinction Rebellion are really good for this. It's not about shaming people um, about some of the choices that we make on the food that we eat on how you travel and move. You don't know where that person's coming from or the stresses and strains that they've got in their lives. XR are really good for pushing that it has to be systems change. So what I always say is do what you can to the best that you can. You know, I, I, I cycle to work. Um, 
I teach my kids um, to be good advocates and respect nature. Uh, I've been a vegetarian for years, but I am not a vegan. So, you know, I'm no shining light. Cheese is still really difficult for me. Um, and um, flight shaming and things like that. If you, I would never begrudge anyone who, you know, has worked all year um, and then flies to Benidorm. Uh, they are not the people that um, we should be targeting. You know, it's something like 50% of uh, global carbon emissions are attributed to um, 1% of um, the global population. So there's a, a champagne glass or a martini glass that the Oxfam um, kind of research did. And, you know, the emissions are all very top heavy. So we need to be reducing the frequent flyers um, and others and maybe taxation on high carbon lifestyles. That that might be something, but certainly don't um, be shaming people um, is what I would do. Be positive, find your tribe and shout about what you're doing. So I think what you guys are doing here is amazing um, creating platforms to have conversations about it. Um, we haven't cracked everything in Newcastle. We've still got loads to do. Um, and I hear of excellent work everywhere. So champion those people that are making the difference um, and who knows what ripples and, and benefits will build. Well, thanks a lot, James. This was brilliant. It was really enjoyable talking to you for the last shy of an hour and I can I can see a, a study visit to the Newcastle shine <laughs> coming on but uh, what I wanted to uh, if I can use this second to advertise the green network run by the Irish Doctors for the Environment we, we are trying to do that and we are really trying to encourage setting up of sustainability committees in all the hospitals because we are pretty far from the NHS we do not have a sustainability lead in, in every hospital or in every uh, health institution. So hopefully we'll get there. Thank you so much for being an inspiration and and a source of great knowledge. And I hope we'll talk more uh, in the future to, to go into a bit more, drill into, into more specifics uh, of, of things that would interest, uh, well, me particularly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd be I'd be very happy to. And I mean, you know, sustainability is so broad. You mentioned Shine Hour. We've got eight Shine themes, you know, ranging from the typical kind of carbon associated with hospitals, but into procurement and travel and care and people. So, um, yeah, if you want to bring me back in the future and we talk on one of those a bit more detail, I'd be more than happy. Thanks so much, James. That was a pleasure. That's a plan. Take care, guys. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Bye.